Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're starting a new book. It's The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. <laughs> I am so hyped for this book. I remember reading The Da Vinci Code when I was like 17 and just thinking, this is the greatest book I've ever, ever read in my whole entire fucking life. And then I read some more books and I was like, wait a minute, that book was trash. <laughs> Not trash. It's like, compulsively readable. It's fun, but it's really poorly written. But I think it's going to be good to look at the book, not in fresh eyes, but with older and wiser eyes and snarkier eyes. So let's get into it. What's so wild about the Da Vinci Code is that before it even starts, we have (laughs) a list of facts and it says, fact, the Priory of Scion a European secret society founded in 1099 is a real organization. Members included Sir Isaac Newton, Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. And you're like, oh, wow, what? That's the fact. So everything written in this book must be true. Not the case. That's a bit of a false equivalency. One can be correct with the other being incorrect. And really, like... The Priory of Scion existed. It's like, okay, that's the fact. You could say that about anything. I could say the Wollongong Netball Club existed. It was formed in 2003 and Jackie, my next door neighbor, was a founding member. And you'd be like, whoa, that means everything's true. Well, <laughs> not really. And then another fact, the Vatican Prelature, don't know what that is. I failed Catholic high school. Known as Opus Dei is a deeply devout Catholic sect that has been the topic of recent controversy due to reports of brainwashing, coercion, and a dangerous practice known as corporal modification. Okay, I love how he's like, there's been recent controversy, even though like there's nothing to back up that claim. Although I'm sure there was recent controversy about this weird little Catholic sect that no one's ever heard of. But then when you do look into it, it's like, it's just a normal little Catholic sect. And they're like, we don't associate ourselves with what was written in that book. And then it says, Opus Dei has just completed construction of a $47 million world headquarters at 243 Lexington Avenue in New York City. And it's like, oh, okay. They've just completed construction of the building. And there was recent controversy about reports of brainwashing. Does Dan Brown just assume that everyone reading this is reading it back in 2003 when it came out? It's 2022. It's no longer recent. I don't know if he realized that it was going to be such a big, huge smash. And I think it's like sort of doxing to just be like, oh yeah, Opus Dei, they're this bunch of Fruit Loops and here's where they live. 
here is their address. Like that's doxing, Dan Brown. You, you're like the first doxer. But anyway, good for them. I love that Opus Day is like, yeah, we're going to have our headquarters in New York. Fuck the Vatican. They're like, we want to be near the Broadway shows. And I get it. And then the final little fact is all description of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. Okay, well then, they're not really secret rituals, are they, if you've got the tea on it? I just think that's crazy to say all descriptions of all artwork, all architecture, all documents, all secret rituals, they're all accurate and bull fucking shit. I mean, there are books written about the inaccuracies in this book and debunking it. And I think if you didn't just come out hot saying, these are the facts, everything's true, then there'd be that leeway. There'd be the suspension of disbelief. Like we're reading fiction here, but the fact that he said, this is all true. I think that just really got people in a tizzy. So after our list of facts, we have a prologue and it says the setting is the Louvre Museum, Paris, 10.46 PM. And I love a specific timestamp. There's nothing I love more than a timestamp that's specific. And the book starts off with renowned curator Jacques Saunier staggered through the vaulted archway of the museum's grand gallery. Okay, so we're finding out a lot about Jacques already. He's a renowned curator. That's the thing about Dan Brown. He's not going to withhold information from us. He's going to come right out and say it. And I was just covering Maze Runner on the Patreon and talk about withholding information. That book We were just dropped into the middle of it without a clue what was going on. And all the characters are like, we'll tell you about it tomorrow. Like, okay, why not just tell me now? So it's refreshing that Dan Brown's like, look, this is who it is. This is where he is. And this is when it's happening. It's 10.46 PM precisely. And there's a lot of verbs (laughs) in this book. He lunged for the nearest painting. He grabbed the gilded frame. Oh, and then (laughs) talk about not withholding information. The 76 year old man heaved the masterpiece toward himself until it tore from the wall and he collapsed backward in a heap beneath the canvas. So he's just telling us, Dan's filling us in that Jacques Saunier is a renowned curator who's 76 years old and he's out of breath because he just tore a priceless artwork off the wall at the Louvre at 10.46 p.m. Dan Brown is like, there's a story and I want you to have it. Here are the details. Here's a list of facts and I'm kind of living. So then as soon as he pulls that painting off of the wall of the Louvre of the Grand Gallery, a thundering iron gate falls down, barricading the entrance and far off an alarm began to ring. Why it's a far off alarm, I'm not too sure because if a crime was happening at the Louvre, if someone was stealing a Caravaggio, Why would the alarm be elsewhere? Why would the alarm not be there where the crime is taking place? And then the curator, he's he's on the floor. He's looking around the Louvre of the Grand Gallery at 10.46 PM. And he's thinking, I need to find someplace to hide. And it's like, where are you going to hide? It's the Louvre. You can't exactly like hide in a suit of armor and just pretend to be part of the exhibit. And then a voice spoke chillingly close, do not move. And so the voice is speaking English. We're in Paris. We're unsure of that person's nationality, but Jacques Sunier, I'm assuming, is French. And yet all the characters are speaking English. <laughs> that's, that's something you might want to get used to. Can't quite remember it, but I have a hunch that da Vinci left clues in English rather than Italian. <laughs> Wild. And then Dan Brown says, on his, I'm just going to refer to the third person narration as Dan Brown. So then Dan Brown says, 
On his hands and knees, the curator froze, turning his head slowly. Well, then he's not frozen then, is he? He froze, turning his head. (sighs) That's an oxymoron. That's a lot of morons. So at the gate, there's this mountainous silhouette of a person. And he was described as being broad and tall. So if you didn't get it from mountainous silhouette, Dan's going to really reinforce that by saying that he's broad and tall. Okay, we... I sort of presumed that from the word mountainous. Okay. And he's got ghost pale skin and thinning white hair. And his irises were pink with dark red pupils. Okay. And then Dan says, the albino drew a pistol from his coat and said to the curator, you should not have run. All right. So he's an albino. We're going to have to address this at some point, but the villain of the book is described as being an albino. It's pretty offensive to people with albinism. I don't really know if we say albino anymore. And so I looked it up and yeah, critics of the book, when it came out, they did say that the portrayal of this character was damning, hateful, and cruelly stereotypical. But then Dan Brown came out and said, Silas's skin color has nothing to do with his violent nature. He is driven to violence by others' cruelty not by anything inherent in his physiology. He says, the novel's portrayal of Silas is a compassionate exploration of how difficult albinism can be and how cruelly societies can ostracize those who look different. And then he goes on to say he considers Silas to be the most sympathetic character in the story. Okay, well and good for you to say, but I'm not quite confident that that's maybe how people interpreted that. Especially maybe people from that community. I don't don't know, Dan. I don't know, Dan. It's all well and good for you to say that your villain is actually the hero of the piece. And also, did you notice how Silas was like, you should not have run? How did Jacques Sunier, 76-year-old Jacques Sunier, run away from this mountainous man with ghost pale skin and thinning white hair? How? And I'll remind you, there's a gate. A gate came down. So the mountainous man is on the other side of the gate and Jacques kneeling on the floor. I mean, the other guy does have a pistol, sure. But like, get up and run. Get up and run. Hide behind the Caravaggio. But instead he's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about in English. And then Silas says, you are lying. And it says, the man stared at him perfectly immobile, except for the glint in his ghostly eyes. See, I don't know if it is a positive portrayal. If you're saying he's got ghostly eyes, how can you describe them as ghostly in a nice way? He's not dead. So then he says, you and your brethren possess something that is not yours. And Jacques thinking, how the fuck does he know that? And he's saying, tell me where it's hidden and you will live. Is it a secret you will die for? The rightful guardians will be restored. And we as the reader, we're like, oh, what's he talking about? This is juicy. So then Jacques's like, fine, fine, I'll tell you. But then. In narration, Dan Brown lets us know that it's going to be a lie and that he's practiced this lie like every night. And so when the curator had finished speaking, like, oh God, we know his name. Do you have to call him the curator? (laughs) Consistently calling him the curator. His name is Jacques. And Silas, he says, yeah, that's what the others told me as well. And Sonia's like, "Uh oh, uh oh, he's already gotten to the others. And Silas is like, yep, I found them, all three of them. And they confirmed what you have just said. Of course he doesn't talk like this. <laughs> I imagine the character is more like, I found them, all three of them. 
They confirmed what you have just said. But I'm going to say it in my campy Australian accent and be like, yeah, I found them, all three of them. And they confirmed what you just said. And so then the curator is like, oh no, that can't be. And he realizes that the Seneschaux, as they're called, had all told the same lie before their own deaths. It was part of the protocol. And then the mountainous man, he says, when you are gone, I will be the only one who knows the truth. And the curator, he's like, oh my God, the truth. I didn't even think of the truth. If I die, the truth will be lost forever. And he's like, oh shit, I got to do something. But then he gets shot. So the curator felt a searing heat as the bullet lodged in his stomach. Seriously, he's called the curator like 14 times. There's no way the audience is left thinking, I wonder what he does. (laughs) He's a curator. So he gets shot in the stomach and the curator's like, ow, that hurts. And I bet he's wishing that he got up and left the vicinity since there was that, you know, gate that was between them. Also, the alarm was going off. Is anyone going to attend to the Louvre? The Parisian police department, what are they doing? Are they on a baguette break? Surely the Louvre has security. Securité, as they would say in France, maybe. Where is the Louvre Securité? A Caravaggio is on the ground. And we're having this full on conversation. He told the whole Senate show lie. How long have we got? And now there's a gunshot and no one's coming running. And it's not like this is an abandoned warehouse somewhere. It's the Louvre. Like fuck man, and it's 10.46. It's not that late at night. It's not like it's 2 a.m. Where are the security personnel? Is it a Monday? We all know Paris shuts down on a Monday. (laughs) Anyone who's been to Paris will know you can't get anywhere on a Monday. So I don't know, maybe it's a Monday and everyone's on break. I don't know. So then the mountainous man, the mountainous ghostly man, he points his gun at Sonia's head. And so then the curator shuts his eyes thinking this is going to be it. But the click of an empty chamber echoed through the corridor. How is it an empty chamber? He's only shot him once. I mean, Silas, if you're going to go to an assassination mission, could you not perhaps fill up your gun? But Silas doesn't care. He just looks down at the gun and he's like, eh, ah, well, you'll die anyway from the gunshot wound. And just to make it clear that he has been shot, Dan tells us, the curator looked down and saw the bullet hole in his white linen shirt. Yeah, I sort of figured when you said he got shot in the stomach that that's what it would have happened. But okay, yeah, we've got confirmation that he's been shot. The curator has been shot. Oh, wait, no, do you want to know where? It was framed by a small circle of blood a few inches below his breastbone. Okay, so it it went in below his breastbone. And and then he thinks to himself, my stomach, we know, we know. And then almost cruelly, the bullet had missed his heart. Yes, we know where the bullet went. We are very clear on where the bullet went. Are you going to draw us a fucking chart? Are you going to pull out a bloody skeleton and point? And so then, okay, all right. Apparently the curator knows all about stomach wounds. He says, oh, I have 15 minutes. I'll survive until the stomach acids seep into my chest cavity, slowly poisoning me from within. So now we've got like a ticking clock because Jacques Saunier, the curator of an art gallery, knows exactly how long it takes to the minute for a gunshot wound to poison your blood or something. Uh, All right, Jacques. And so now Jacques's thinking, oh no, I'm stuck here in the grand gallery of the Louvre because the iron gate has fallen down so I can't escape and no one's coming to save me in the next 15 minutes because 
everyone's on a go slow. All the security personnel have clocked out for the night. The police department are on protest. And he thinks by the time anyone got to me, I would be dead because they're in the most abandoned part of Paris. Yep. Okay. So he staggers to his feet because he's like, I've got to do something. I must pass on the secret. That's what this whole prologue's about. He's going to leave some clues. And we're going to unravel those clues. It's going to be a wild ride. Strap yourselves in. And he's thinking about his mission, an unbroken chain of knowledge. And he's thinking, I must find some way. And then Jacques thinks, suddenly now, despite all the precautions, despite all the fail safes, Jacques Sunier was the only remaining link, the sole guardian of one of the most powerful secrets ever kept. Okay, despite all the precautions and despite all the fail safes, what, what were those fail safes exactly? Four people knew the secret. You and three other people knew the secret and that's it. And you all presumably live in the same town. <laughs> You're all 76 years old, all belonging to the same secret society. Yeah, no one was ever going to be able to crack that code. Oh, so many, so many fail safes. They didn't even write it down. They could have just written it down in a Google doc and had some sharing permissions between the four of them or something. Just have a, have a backup, have a backup of the cloud. I don't know. Oh, so many fail safes. And then Dan says he was trapped inside the grand gallery and there existed only one person on earth to whom he could pass the torch. Only one person on earth. And that's going to be our protagonist, Tom Hanks. I mean, really? A symbologist from Harvard. Robert Langdon, he's the only person on earth who will be smart enough to figure out the clues that are going to be left. There's some bright minds out there, but Jacques Sunet is paying them dust. And so he's looking up at all the world's most famous paintings, smiling down on him. There's a hint that it's the Mona Lisa. Uh, Wincing in pain, he summons all of his strength. The desperate task before him, he knew, would require every remaining second of his life. And... Yeah, he's got a full 15 minutes of that, apparently. A full uninterrupted 15 minutes where he will not be bothered by the police or by any security personnel. Okay, to be fair, they may arrive before he dies, but they won't be able to get through the gate because apparently the gate won't open for another 20 minutes. Okay, seems a little bit convenient plot-wise, but let's roll with it. Okay, let's go to chapter one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One. And we're with our protagonist, Tom Hanks. So, Robert Langdon awoke slowly. Awoke slowly. Okay, that's an odd way to put it. Okay, so a telephone is ringing in the darkness and he's like, oh, uh, where am I? He's looking around his surroundings and he's like, oh, there's, there's a bedroom and there's a four poster bed. What the hell? And then his eyes focus on a bathrobe hanging up and the bathrobe had the monogram Hotel Ritz Paris. Okay, so that's one mystery we've solved. He found all the clues. He's at the Hotel Ritz Paris. See? Dan Brown wants us to know the information and we're getting it. And then he gets a phone call and it's reception of the hotel being like, Monsieur Langdon, I hope I have not awakened you. And he's like looking at the bedside clock and it's 12.32 a.m. So again, we we are getting timestamps in this book. Oh, I'm getting such a thrill from these timestamps. And as I recall, that's about just under two hours since Jacques Sounier, the curator, got shot in the stomach at the age of 76 years old. And Robert Langdon had only been asleep for about an hour. So we are getting a full timeline of this day. I'm loving it. So the person at reception saying, sorry about this, but you have a visitor. He insists it's urgent. And Langdon's like, a visitor? And he's like, oh, he's still, he's still so discombobulated from waking up in this hotel room, the Ritz Paris. And he's looking at a crumpled flyer on his bedside table to like orient himself. I guess he just reads the flyer on the table. And it's really just a convenient technique for Dan Brown to just give us some more context and backstory. So he, he prints out the flyer. Why has Robert Langdon kept a flyer for his own event just lying crumpled on the table? I don't understand that, but here it is. Okay. The American University of Paris proudly presents an evening with Robert Langdon, professor of religious symbology. We are getting all the information. And so now, While he's on the phone to someone in the middle of the night, they're saying it's urgent. He's recollecting (laughs) about the event that happened earlier that night. And he's musing about it. Says Langdon groaned, tonight's lecture, a slideshow about pagan symbolism hidden in the stones of Chartres Cathedral had probably ruffled some conservative feathers in the audience. (laughs) It's like, okay, okay. Are we gonna go back to the phone call that you're currently on? And so Langdon, he's like, nah, I'm sorry, I'm tired. And then the concierge, he says, but sir, your guest is an important man. And Langdon's like, oh yeah, probably some religious nut job trying to track me down and yell at me. And Dan says, his books on religious paintings and cult symbology 
had made him a reluctant celebrity in the art world. All right, a reluctant celebrity in the art world because he wrote a couple of books on religious paintings and cult symbology? Like, I don't think so. I mean, this book made Dan Brown a celebrity for doing the exact same thing, but it was fiction. You know, no one's really reading up on this, are they? Well, I guess, I guess they are, but to be a celebrity, you're Robert Langdon, you're not Brad Pitt. The way Dan Brown writes Robert Langdon, you'd think he was the biggest sex symbol of symbology. He's Harry Styles walking the streets of Paris. Everyone wants to get in his pants. And you're like, really? Just this dowdy Harvard professor? Like he's, he's the sex symbol of 2003? I don't really know who was hot in 2003. Let's look that up. Okay, so the sexiest man alive in 2003, according to People Magazine, was Johnny Depp. So Robert Langdon's walking around like Johnny Depp. That's sort of a reference that hasn't aged that well. But yeah, okay. But also, Angels and Demons is the first of the Robert Langdon series. Da Vinci Code's actually the sequel, even though it's more popular. And he makes reference to the events of Angels and Demons, helping boost his profile. And so Langdon's just trying to fob him off. He's like, yeah, just get a name and number. I'll call him before I leave Paris, okay? And then he hangs up. And then he frowns. (laughs) He's always frowning or groaning or staring. So then he frowns at the guest relations handbook. And then he tells us the cover of the handbook is sleep like a baby in the city of lights, slumber at the Paris Ritz. Yeah, we know. We we sort of gathered that you're at the Paris Ritz, judging from the monogrammed bathrobe that says you're at the Paris Ritz. Okay. Then we get a description of himself. And so how do you think Dan Brown is going to organically introduce a character and give us the character's physical characteristics Tell us about their appearance. How do we think he's going to manage to bring that up in an interesting way? Well, I'll tell you. He looks in the mirror. (laughs) He looks in the mirror and the man standing back at him was a stranger. His usually sharp blue eyes looked hazy and drawn. Yeah, because you just woke up. It's the middle of the night. You're probably jet lagged. A dark stubble was shrouding his strong jaw and dimpled chin. Okay, Johnny Depp. And around his temples... The gray highlights were advancing, making their way deeper into his thicket of coarse black hair. So he thinks he's a stud. And then he thinks, if Boston Magazine could see me now. And then we're getting another little sidebar back to the publication of the Boston Magazine. Oh my God. So he says, last month, Boston Magazine had listed him as one of that city's top 10 most interesting people. Like, really? In the whole city of Boston? Uh... Well, maybe after the events at the Vatican, okay. But like Boston Magazine, do you not have anything better to write? What a puff piece. What a puff piece. The poor journo trying to make their mark at the Boston Magazine's getting saddled with these chicken shit stories. Is there nothing to report on in Boston in 2003? So apparently at the lecture he was giving that night, the magazine came up. So the hostess is introducing him at the American University of Paris's Pavilion Dauphine. Again, we're gonna get every bit of information that we need. So she says, ladies and gentlemen, our guest tonight needs no introduction and then proceeds to introduce him. He is the author of numerous books and then names three, The Symbology of Secret Sex, The N of the Illuminati, The N of the Illuminati? That might be a typo. The Lost Language of Ideograms, And then she says, many of you use his textbooks in class. It's like, okay, well, if they do, wouldn't they already know that? I feel like Dan Brown's just putting that in a line of dialogue to let us know that he writes textbooks. 
So even though he's giving us all the information, he's treating us like he thinks we're idiots. And then all, all the students in the crowd, they nod enthusiastically. They're like, oh, that's right. I've got his textbook in my lap right now. Yes, I had the textbook out earlier. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We know who he is. Like, yeah, you're at the lecture. You signed up for the lecture. And then the hostess, I don't know if she's trying to flirt with him or what, but she's like, I had planned to introduce him tonight by sharing his impressive CV. Well, okay, well, you just did. But an audience member has just handed me a far more intriguing introduction. And so then she pulls out a copy of Boston Magazine. And Langdon, he's like, what? Where the hell did she get that? I don't don't know, Boston? Maybe magazines get printed and shipped around the country and the world, perhaps? I don't know. And then the hostess just starts reading out the article. And I'm like, okay, this introduction's going for a while, babe. People are there to see sex symbol of symbology, Robert Langdon. They're not here to read an article that they've probably already read or could just go and read themselves. And Langdon's feeling super uncomfortable. But oh, the crowd were eating it up. Oh, the crowd were grinning. What a crowd of nerds. And then the hostess, she's really hamming it up. She's like saying to the audience, would you like to know more? Would you like to hear more? And it's like, what? You're not the opening act for like a concert. Just say, welcome to the stage, Robert Langdon, who you're here to see and presumably already know of. You already have an awareness of him because you're at the fucking lecture and you read his fucking textbooks. Okay. All right. So, oh my God, she's still reading because the crowd applauds. They're like, yeah. Yeah, we want to hear more. Fuck yeah, give it to us. So she says, although Professor Langdon might not be considered hunk handsome, like some of our younger awardees, the 40-something academic, okay, so we know he's 40-something, has more than his share of scholarly allure. His captivating presence is punctuated by an unusually low baritone speaking voice, which his female students describe as chocolate for the ears. This is just downright inappropriate. Hunky, hunky, chocolate for the ears, Robert Langdon. And like, I remember from the movie, I'm pretty sure he gets up and he's giving a lecture about like Nazi symbology. So what an introduction to a talk about Nazi symbology. Before we get into the hard stuff, let's talk about how his low baritone speaking voice is chocolate for the ears. Also, unusually low baritone speaking voice, unusually low. Like, I know I don't have a baritone speaking voice and I apologize that you have to listen to me right now, but how low would it have to be for a baritone voice to be unusually low? Is Robert Langdon Barry White? But after the chocolate for ears comment, the hall erupted in laughter. Everyone's like, oh, fuck, that's hilarious. Oh, fuck, he's got a low voice. That's so fucking funny. Keep going, keep going. Read the magazine to me, keep going. And then Langdon's feeling awkward because he knows what's coming next because he's memorized it. And the line is Harrison Ford in Harris Tweed. And he's like, oh no. And I'm also wearing my Harris Tweed and Burberry turtleneck right now. What are the odds? And so Langdon, he gets up and he's like, Monique, okay, enough. Thank you. He says, Boston Magazine clearly has a gift for fiction. And if I find which one of you, oh, sorry. I forgot that I'm reading out a line of dialogue from Robert Langdon. He says, thank you, Monique. Boston Magazine clearly has a gift for fiction. Thank you, Monique. Boston Magazine clearly has a gift for fiction. And if I find which one of you provided that article, I'll have the consulate deport you. And then the crowd laughs. They're like, ha 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 ha, we're we're talking about deportation. I don't think Robert Langdon has the power to deport people, but he's making fun of deportations, which 
has never really been that humorous to me, but okay. It was a different time, 2003, different time, I guess. And so then we're just like getting the play-by-play of the lecture. He's about to go into the power of symbols. And then eventually the ringing of Langdon's hotel phone broke the silence. Oh, we're back in the present time. He's stopped recollecting about his evening. Like, is he just sitting on the bed daydreaming these flashbacks? How does he ever get anything done if he's always just like remembering things? And then he's groaning in disbelief that the phone's ringing. He's groaning. He's always groaning. And so it's the concierge and he says, Mr. Langdon, I'm sorry, but your guest is now en route to your room. I thought I should let you know. And Langdon's like, You sent someone to my room? And he's like, I'm sorry, monsieur, but a man like this, I cannot presume the authority to stop him. Okay, it's a police officer coming to his room. Why is the concierge being so coy? He keeps being like, oh, a very important person's here. Oh, a very important man. A man like this. You have to accept this guest into your room. He's such, such an important man. Just say the fucking cops. If you just said, oh my God, Mr. Langdon, so sorry to wake you up in the middle of the night, but the police are here and they need to ask you a few questions. He'd be like, oh, okay, send them up. This is such an unnecessary hurdle that we're experiencing. And then there's a knock at the door and Langdon's like, oh, well, I better put on my bathrobe that's monogrammed with the hotel's name on it. And so through the door, the policeman is saying, Mr. Langdon, my name is Lieutenant Jerome Collet, Direction Centrale Police Judiciaire. Okay. And so Langdon's like, wow, the judicial police. And then he tells us the DCP, so he's already on like acronym basis with the judicial police. He's like, the DCPJ? Oh, the concierge should have just told me it's the DCPJ. And he tells us the DCPJ was the rough equivalent of the US FBI. All right, thanks for translating that for us, Dan. Glad we got that insight into the DCPJ. But Langdon's like, it's Paris. I could be getting pickpocketed five seconds from now. So he doesn't open the door fully. He just opens it with that security chain still intact. He's like, no one's pickpocketing me, uh-uh. And Langdon's like, what, what's going on, dude? And he says, the guy from the DCPJ, he says, my capitan requires your expertise in a private matter. And Langdon's like, oh, now it's after midnight. It's like, well, yeah, I think now. If it could have waited until the morning, maybe it would have. So then the guy from the DCPJ, he says, am I correct that you were scheduled to meet with the curator of the Louvre this evening? And Langdon's like, mm, yeah because he and the revered curator Jacques Saunier. All right, we've met Jacques Saunier. So I don't know why Dan feels it necessary to tell us again that he's a revered curator. You sort of nailed that point home when you said he was a curator 78 fucking times. So he says, he and the revered curator Jacques Saunier had been slated to meet for drinks after Langdon's lecture tonight, which we also know about because the whole thing was replayed for us, but Saunier had never shown up. Because he's dead. We know that. (laughs) He died. At 10.46 p.m. he was shot. (laughs) And so then he goes, yeah, how did you know? And the guy from the DCPJ, he says, well, we found your name in his daily planner. And Langdon's like, well, I trust nothing is wrong. Uh, It's after midnight. A policeman from the DCPJ is at your door. I think something might be wrong, Robert. I know you're the most intriguing person in Boston, but yeah, I, I think... I think you could probably suspect that something might be a little bit off. So the DCPJ, he just slides across a photo and Langdon sees the photo and his entire body went rigid. 
And the guy from the DCPJ, he says, this photo was taken less than an hour ago inside the Louvre. And Langdon's like, who would do this? And the guy from the DCPJ, he's like, well, we'd hope you'd tell us considering your knowledge in symbology famously, you're the most famous symbologist in the world because we all know symbologists. I can list 10 right now, but you're the most famous. He says, well, we know you're the most famous symbologist in the world and you had planned to meet with him. So we thought you'd tell us. We thought you'd tell the DCPJ. So then Langdon's looking at the image. We can only ever find out what an image or a article or anything is once he describes it for us. He's got to set eyes on it and then he'll tell us what it is. So the image was gruesome and strange. So then the guy from the DCPJ is like, okay, well, my captain's waiting. Come on. And Langdon's still looking at the photo. He's like, this symbol here and the way his body is so oddly positioned. I can't imagine who would do this to someone. And then the agent, because he's got a flair for a cliffhanger, he says, you don't understand, Mr. Langdon. What you see in this photograph, and then he paused. (laughs) He full on is delivering it with so much panache. It's really commendable. So he says, what you see in this photograph, pause. Monsieur Signer did that to himself. And that's the end of the chapter. The DCPJ agent, he really delivered that last line really well. And we're hooked. We're officially hooked. So let me know your thoughts on the Da Vinci Code. Are you a fan? Were you a fan? Did you fall out of love with it because of the movie and Tom Hanks's haircut? Have you read the sequels? Oh, I've read some of those sequels. They are not a good, but they're also quite enjoyable to read. (laughs) There I said it. And I'm also super hyped because I'm going to Paris next month. This book is making me so keen for my holiday to Paris. And also I'm going to make it a tax write-off because of this podcast. So thank you. Nobody tell the ATO. So yeah, if you have any thoughts, let me know. As I said, we've just started the Maze Runner on Patreon. So if you want to gain access to those episodes, just go to patreon.com slash breaking down bad books. And you can also hear the Divergent, the 365 Days, and the Fifty Shades Darker coverage there as well. And for this season, I'm going to say, instead of bye at the end, I'm going to say au revoir. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.